Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet. I'm your host, Jeff Tett, CEO of Results, where we believe poor execution is the number one reason businesses underachieve. We partner with your management team to help you solve that challenge and unlock the hidden potential that exists in your business. Now, I'm excited about our conversation today, and we're going to be joined in a few minutes by Mark C. Crowley. And the reason I'm excited about it is in many workplaces, employee engagement is so poor that employees are very unhappy and unproductive. So in a few minutes, when Mark joins us, we're going to discuss how to become the kind of manager that employees are motivated and energized to work for. He's going to share his findings on the key attributes and behaviors of the world's most admired leaders and how you can do it too. I also want to thank our generous partners that help make Unleashed possible. The hardworking team at the Edmonton Community Foundation, they connect donors and Edmonton area charities to help create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come through the power of endowment. So a dollar that you donate with them not only help, helps today, but it helps into the future through their endowment funds. And they make it really easy to get your donation dollars into the hands of those who need them most, the city's most vulnerable populations. You can connect with them at the edfoundation.org to get started for as little as $50. And our friends at Project Forest, they're onto a really interesting concept, very, very unique. Now they're connecting corporations with their environmental goals. So if it's important for your company to help fill our country with lush forests and clean air, the team at Project Forest will make that happen on your behalf. They do the work. So you can connect with their team for a conversation at projectforest.ca. And today's show sponsor is Profound Talent. Profound Talent elevates your business through your greatest asset, your people. Through executive and professional level recruitment and leadership development, Profound Talent is your partner in growth. You can contact Terry and her terrific team for a conversation at profoundtalent.com. And thank you as well to our growing community of Unleashed subscribers and leaders. If you like today's conversation, the best way to say thank you and to help us continue to grow that community is to share the episodes with your colleagues and to share some of your takeaways from the various episodes on your social networks. And be sure to use the hashtag ResultsThePod. Now I'm on to uh, today's episode where we are joined by Mark C. Crowley. Now, Mark is a leadership consultant, professional speaker, and the best-selling author of Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century. His ambition is to fundamentally change how we lead in the workplace. Mark honed his leadership abilities over a 20-plus career in the ultra-competitive banking and financial services industry, where he excelled as a leader by implementing what he calls unusual practices. He was named Leader of the Year for driving record sales performance while managing a team of nearly 2,000 investment brokers across the United States. And he accomplished all this by breaking away from traditional leadership theory and serving as both an advocate and a caring coach to every person on his team. And those unique leadership practices influenced his employees to become uncommonly committed and achievement-driven. He's a regular leadership contributor to Fast Company Magazine, and he's been published in the Huffington Post, CEO Magazine, USA Today, Thrive Global, and the Great Places to Work Institute. It's my great pleasure to welcome Mark C. Crowley to Unleashed. All right. Well, it looks like we got things. It looks like we got things sorted out. So the attendee numbers are uh, continuing to accelerate. 
people are coming back with us. And uh, I'm sure someday in the future, we'll look back on this and laugh, but in the short term, boy, oh boy. Uh, so really grateful. So Andrea Kenna and Janelle Fontania on our team are uh, our technology geniuses. And because they were able to figure out a, a solution to something that we had never dealt with before. So Andrea, Janelle, so grateful for what you've done here. And Mark, thank you for your patience and for your flexibility and understanding as we worked, uh, worked through that, uh, that, that technology challenge on our end. So welcome to Unleashed, Mark. It's really great to be joined by you today. Thank you so much. You know, it's frustrating, but you handled it beautifully. And I want to thank your audience for hanging in there and um, coming back because we did have a little problem. Sometimes we just take all this technology for granted. And I still think it's a miracle that we're doing this. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Perspective is everything. So, Mark, I, uh, I know I've been looking forward to chatting with you for a long time, and uh, and I also, you know, I want to say thank you to the audience for giving us some patience here today and some understanding as well for sticking with us and coming back. Right now, we're uh, we're grateful to you at the best of times, and uh, when you stand by us like this, we really appreciate that. Mark, your book, uh, loved your book, and uh, as as I was saying earlier, when I when I first sort of came across your work. You know, leading from the heart as an example, I, I thought this was going to be a book filled with philosophy and inspiration. And it you know, certainly has a lot of that, but it's so much more than that. So you've gone to great lengths to include science, research, uh, even some compelling statistical evidence about why uh, leading with our heart more often matters. And it's pretty clear now since I've been following you for the last probably about a year now, you've got a massive following uh, online you're populating the world with a different kind of leader by convincing them to stop ignoring the heart and have a greater impact on them, on those around them. And I just thought maybe where we would start is just tell us a little bit more about your approach to leadership. Uh, it's a very big question. And I, you know, I want to go back a little bit into your question, Jeff, and tell you that, you know, when I was coming up with the book title, Lead from the Heart, you know, even I knew that that was going to be, you know, sort of rejected by a lot of people because we've historically always believed that the worst thing you could do in business was to bring heart into it. But as you referenced, there's science to this, right? There's, a, there's science that's actually showing that the heart and the mind are connected and that the heart plays a huge role in influencing our choices and feelings and emotions drive our behavior. Nevertheless, I still knew that this title was going to be off-putting and I paid a consultant a lot of money, um, five figures, to give me a strategy for how can I get my message out because I'm coming from, you know, I have no platform, nobody knows who I am, I'm coming out of corporate world, writing my first book, so I've got nothing just except this off-putting title. And she told me, she goes, you will effing fail if you continue to ever use that expression, use lead from the heart again. And so what she was really telling me was get ready, man, because the world is not ready for that. So I think, you know, now to get to your question is that this has been a journey. And so my strategy in recognizing that the money I spent was well spent, even though it was not what I wanted to hear. What I wanted to hear was they're going to throw you a parade. This is brilliant. But what she was telling me was that parade isn't coming for a really long time and you're going to get punched in the stomach a lot because companies are just going to think you're going to come sing Kumbaya on stage. 
Well, now I think what's happening is the world is sort of coming to realize that caring about people has become essential thanks to COVID. And I have proved through my career and then all just a tremendous amount of additional research and work that caring is the greatest thing that you can do for people. As long, by the way, as you're assigning people goals and holding people accountable and doing all the traditional leadership things. It's if you're looking to motivate people, it's really about the heart. It's really about caring. Yeah. I'll stop there. Now, well, and I wonder like any good marketing, if, if, uh, if you're a little bit polarizing, that can be a good thing. And I, I could see how the message of lead from the heart would certainly turn off a section of leaders, but for the ones that really uh, sort of subscribe to that philosophy already. I mean, that's they would just gravitate towards the title. And I know I, I, I sure I was excited to get a hold of the book and learn more about your work and your research. So what, what is the role that, uh, that the heart plays in leadership, Mark? And how do you sort of evaluate and describe that? You know, it used to be that people went to work for a paycheck. That's been, you know, throughout history, work was a equal exchange. The more you work, the more productive you are, the better you're going to get paid, right? So, and that was really what I call the value exchange. And so while people may have always wanted more from work, it would have been nice to have a work that you love to go to every day, as Shakespeare said. But most people basically just put up with whatever was given to them because they felt lucky to have a job. In fact, many employers even told them that you're lucky to have a job. But what has happened is if you go back to Maslow, which in 1943, so a very long time ago, he basically said, look, all human beings are here to fulfill a purpose. They're here to maximize their own you know, human potential, if you will. And he said that, you know, basically we have to meet our basic needs first. So food, water, shelter, steady, you, you know, you can't miss a day, has to be consistent. And so, you know, life for most people was just pay to, paycheck to paycheck. Well, we've gotten to a point, not only in America, but really across the world in most countries, where most people are capable now of meeting their basic needs on a consistent basis. So even if you're working full time, you're not being well paid, well-paid relative to you know, history, people are earning more and, and have the ability to meet their most basic needs. And so now they're looking up to the top of the pyramid and they're saying, I want growth. I want appreciation. I want love. I want to maximize my own potential and I want to do meaningful work and I want to contribute. And so all of these now are all these additional values that organizations have said, like, I don't need to be paying attention to this. And so while you have, you know, the data validation of the disconnect is that we have engagement that hasn't improved anywhere in the world in the last 15 years, despite a lot of trying. And you've got job satisfaction scores that are basically sort of flatlined around 50%. So it's not natural that people would be that disengaged and that unhappy at work. And it really comes down to the fact that people have evolved and changed in what they want and need in exchange for work. And we as leaders, we didn't see it. We didn't adapt to it. We didn't take it seriously. And now we're, you know, I think COVID is sort of the tipping point where it's being forced upon leaders to say, I've got to be more thoughtful. I've got to be more caring, empathetic, compassionate, those kinds of things. And this kind of stuff sounds soft. And I hope just by the tone of my voice that you can tell that I'm not coming from like a spiritualist point of view, I'm coming from this is the way to drive performance in the 21st century. Support your people in the way that we're talking about, and you're going to get people to scale mountains for you, as I proved, you know, through the course of my career.
So, yeah, so in essence, leadership is not caught up to the needs, hopes, wants, desires, and dreams of our employees. Is that that's fair to say? I was just talking to an organization, and um, they're having they're having some real difficulties in terms of people being happy at work. Like they're miserable, and so we started to go through a diagnostic. And one of the things that um, they said was, you know, sometimes you know some of the people we have them go on to an email by 10 o'clock in the morning so that we know they're working. And if they don't hit it, then we call them. And I'm saying, so you, you have like unworthy, you know, untrustworthy people working for you, people that aren't committed to their work that you would need to be, you know, measuring them, monitoring them constantly. And it's because we see them at work and we think, okay, I can pay attention to them. And I know when they're doing their work, now they're at home, I've got to micromanage them. And it's just that instinct that says, I don't trust them. They're going to slack off if I don't pay attention. So I'm going to start an eight o'clock conference call and I'm going to have to have them key into this email at 10 o'clock. So I always know they're working and people are working. And then on top of it, they've got their children at home or they've got a spouse who's also working with them. And it's this new dynamic. And they're just saying, you know, it would be much nicer if you just trusted me to do good work. And so it's a whole mindset shift that has to happen. And does it make sense? Yeah. And do you, like, Mark, do you think that we're closing the gap on that or are we falling further behind? Well, it's interesting because, you know, I have a big presence on Twitter and have a lot of interaction with people. So not only am I trying to teach kind of what you were saying at the very beginning, you know, I'm doing this drip, 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 where I want people tweet by tweet, article by article, podcast by podcast to get a sense that he's credible, his message is credible, and this is kind of where we need to go. And in the interactions that I'm having with people, what I'm finding is, is the general sense is, is that if you were caring and supportive uh, and trusting as a leader before, where you hired really motivated people, you train them well to do their jobs, you're very good at establishing expectations, you're very good about connecting with people and checking in with them and seeing how they're doing from a coaching standpoint as opposed to a micromanagement standpoint. Those are the people who were able to get over the low hurdle that remote work cause for them, right? So now all of a sudden you're calling people and they got babies in the background screaming and the boss just wants to go, where are you on this? Well, you can't have that conversation any longer in this world. And so the people that had the inclination, they are immediately empathetic and go, you know what, Jeff, can we, can I call you back in 15 minutes or better yet, when everything's squared away in your house, call me back and we'll have the conversation. How does that work for you? People are thinking, man, how thoughtful of him. Meanwhile, the person who was micromanaging before, who wasn't trusting their people, who was even, maybe even competing with their people, this has been an even, this has become a big hurdle for them because now it's like, well, now you've just made things worse for me. I don't even trust that they're doing anything. So I've got to make sure that, you know, one of the, the big complaints, and this is getting validated in all the research, is that people are spending an infinitely greater amount of time in meetings than they ever spent before. And we think we have to occupy the time. We think we have to, you know, keep people scheduled all the time, like, you know, put our thumb on them kind of a thing. And what I've learned is that the people that you really want working for you are the people who feel really good about saying, Jeff, look what I've accomplished, as opposed to look what I did because you made me, is a big shift in, in the way, you know, anybody who's high achieving, 
Um, and I, you know, I'm sure you see this in the people that you're interviewing. Higher achieving people want to be able to say, I did this on my own initiative and I did really good work and now here we go, you know, as opposed to, you know, yeah, I got it done. You know, I got it done because, you know, I was on an eight o'clock call, a nine o'clock call, a 10 o'clock call, 11 o'clock call. It's a very different mindset. So, yeah, Mark, I, you know, I like that you talked a bit about the historical, like the origins of leadership, and you refer to the Maslow hierarchy of needs and how in most, most countries around the world, we have just gone to a certain point where employees kind of have a lot of the basics in, in, a lot of, in a lot of parts of the world, and I know that not in every part, but you also in your book talk about the scarcity mindset uh, being really pervasive in leadership and causing all kinds of problems. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what the scarcity mindset is from a leadership capacity and, and, and why that that has caused such a challenge, I guess, in the state of workplace engagement. And, you know, that's a very spiritual idea, this idea of an abundance mentality versus scarcity mentality or mindset. And where I first learned it was, you know, 30 years ago in Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, right? Um, which, by the way, is inherently a very spiritual book. It's informed by a lot of spiritual traditions, which basically says that stop competing with everyone. Everybody's on a different journey, a different path. And like, Jeff, you're not my competition. Like, I don't, right? I'm not threatened by you. And so one of the chief complaints that we've seen, and Gallup has validated this over and over, if you ask employees, like, tell me about your manager and what things concern you, very high ranking, is this idea that my manager is actually competing with me. My manager is actually threatened by me. Right. And I am guarantee you somebody listening to this is like, yes, I've worked for people like this. I work for people like this my entire career yeah. where, you know, you know, some uh, unintentionally I did things that threatened them. And so you sort of see this passive aggressive response where, you know, they're sort of holding you back in some way, shape or form because they don't want you to get in. They don't want you to get more recognition than them. They don't want you know, the, the deep underlying fear is they're going to take you're going to take their job. And so. The idea is, is to look at it from an abundance mindset, which is, I'll give me another example. We've always believed, like, let's say you have a team of 30 people, which I did at one point, right? So this was early in my career, 30 people all doing the same job in different markets. And the idea within the organization was, you know, realistically, from a compensation standpoint, from a bonus standpoint, recognition, all that, probably only like the top 20% are going to get anything and the other 80% are just going to get paid. And so I, I said, well, why would we want to do that? Like, why would you only want it? Why would you intentionally cap or limit it? So we, we believe that only 20% are really going to do a great job. And my mindset was, again, from this abundance mentality, which is how do I create a system where everyone can be successful? And, and by doing that, by figuring out how everyone could thrive, and everyone can have an opportunity to really excel and share in the abundance of success. Yeah. I was able to bring them all together as a team so that they collaborated. So because they were all doing the same job, Jeff, somebody, one guy did created this idea. Now he's introducing it and saying, hey, everyone, this is working for me. In a competitive mindset, they would never share it. Yeah. Right? 
And so we elevated all 30 or other 29's performances because they were sharing ideas and looking for ways to help each other because they knew that not only were they giving, but they were receiving. Yeah, yeah. Great. I like, uh, no, that's great. And I, uh, I like what Bill Black says in the chat. So managers hire uh, soldiers, but leaders hire captains and turn them into future leaders. I think that's brilliantly said, Bill. And Mark, I know by just knowing the Unleashed community that we have tuning in today, that a lot of them are probably doing a lot of the heart-based leadership fundamentals already, or they wouldn't be here, but they also want to sort of have a chance to learn some other things that maybe in some other tricks, some other tools they could add to their, uh, to their toolkit. You mentioned hiring and coaching and, and, and training, listening and communication. Like how else would you be able to identify like, what makes a heart-based leader different than someone that, that is maybe not so heart-based? So let's start off with the, with the, with the point that um, gets often missed. So I'm, my title is lead from the heart. So I'm all about the heart, right? But it's not all heart. It, it can never be all heart. And the reason that I went for, you know, so, you know, forward with that title is because it's true, truly that the heart is what's missing in leadership. We make all of our decisions with the mind. We, we look at a spreadsheet and we go, yeah, let's lay off, let's lay off 5% of the people. Look at the, look at the savings we're going to get. And we don't think of down the hill. We don't, our hearts don't go, what's that going to do to those people? What's it going to do to the other 95% of the people who are staying? What, you know, what's their feeling going to be? If you're going to let those five people go, well, then you're probably going to let me go. So now you've created all this dissension and upheaval inside of people. And so this is what has to happen is we gotta, we've got to get into a balance of mind and heart and be willing to act with the heart. The other thing that I would say is, is to emphasize something that came up in a discussion that I had with Jim Harder who is the head of research for the last 30 years. He created the engagement study and their well-being study at Gallup. And we were having this conversation. It, was, it had to do with managing millennials and tying it into engagement. And I just like instinctively, I just said to him, I go, what, what would happen if we changed the word manager to coach? And he was like stunned. Like, you know, it, it was all of his research was saying this, but never had those words been articulated. And he goes, we should do that. And, and I think that's really what it's about. When you think about a coach, like, so let's say it's two minutes left in the game. Let's say the bas college basketball game and you're the coach, right? Two minutes, you're five points down. You don't put yourself into the game. Yeah. Right. You don't go, hey, kids, sit down. Coach is going in. I'm going to win this game for you. Right. You go in and you, you say, well, I need to train this team to excel and be prepared for that moment when they're five points down with two minutes to go and teach them how to win. It's a very different mindset. So I, I think if you just start there, like after this conversation is over, people can expand in their mind. Like, what's the difference between a coach and a manager? A coach cares about their people. One of the, the thing we've learned about the very best coaches is that, and you have Dan Coyle on, who's talked about this in, in the culture code, the very best coaches care about the whole person, all dimensions of the person. They get to know them personally. They do things personally for them, accommodating needs and interests and thoughtfully doing that, right? This is a very different orientation than just saying, I've got 30 people and they're all gonna be managed the same way. Yeah, yeah, right? Mark, 
Mark, I think with that story, you have just you've you've just turned uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of unleashed uh, community members from micromanagers to coaches. And I myself, I'm thinking about, oh my goodness, how many times in the work environment have I pushed an employee aside proverbially and uh, shot the free throw for them? And I'm like, wow, I I will never I'll endeavor to never do that again. That is that's brilliant, Mark. Thank you. Now, what about the other thing, a big piece to this is, uh, and, and empathy is, is and vulnerability are talked about a lot. I mean, Brené Brown has sort of uh, opened up the kimono and, and blew the lid off that one. But I'm curious about your perspective on empathy. Like, where does empathy come from? And I, and I see, like, here's, here's something I see almost every day is, uh, is leaders that I know are fairly hard on their people or can be, you know, demanding and, and, and tough on their people and and maybe well within uh, reasonable expectations, but they certainly seem to be hard on people. But then on the other side of it, they uh, express all this like empathy and, and love and appreciation and affection for their pets on Instagram, but they don't seem to be able to sort of parlay that into the workplace. I mean, I even saw an article yesterday, I think it was in Inc. Magazine, suggesting that only one in 10 leaders are sort of equipped to be transformational leaders and everybody else the best we can hope for is just learn how to swim so you don't sink but we can't be Michael Phelps so what's your take on where where empathy comes from and are leaders you know born or can anybody learn how to be a transformational leader I mean there's a lot of a lot of questions there and I you know the first thing I would say is that I don't trust the Inc. magazine contention that only 10 percent of people right so um, I would say so let's let's just agree that that probably isn't true now that might mean that 10 percent currently are doing all the things that we're hoping and, and that may or may be true right I, I can't tell you what I know is that there's a big gap between where we need to be and what we're actually doing but the idea for this audience is to not think well you know why bother you know I'm never going to get there because that's not the case and why it's not the case is because if you have a pet, it's, it's normal behavior to love your pet, right? I mean, I see people, I walk the beach every morning and the people are just in love with their dogs in the morning. You know, I see people driving down the street, the dog's sitting up on their shoulder or sitting in the passenger in the car. I mean, we treat these pets like they're our loved ones. So then you go, well, how come we can't do that at work? Because we haven't given people permission to do it. We tell people, look, leave your troubles at the door. We don't need to get too close to people because if you get close to people, they're going to they're gonna manipulate you. They're going to take advantage of you. They're going to get soft around the middle. They're going to undermine your effectiveness as a leader. So you have to keep them under your thumb. You have to be hard on people. You don't have to be hard on people. And interestingly, if you were to, Jeff, if you, you know, reached out to people that used to work for me and say, hey, you work for Mark Crowley, what, what, like, what, what are some of the, what's one adjective that you would use to describe his leadership? Well, I mean, heart, right? You'd say heart. I would think to a person, they would say, he's the most demanding person I ever worked for. But demanding and hard on people are two very different things. So my belief was, I'm giving you everything that you could possibly need. I make people feel safe and connected and valued and appreciated. And those, and growing, these things matter to people and they hit you right in here. And when people feel that way, and when they're trained well, and they're working for a manager that they know has their back, 
they will do extraordinary work. So my idea was if, if I'm preparing people to do extraordinary work, then let's not set average goals. Let's set objectives that will blow people away. And by the way, if you're tying rewards to that, people are the beneficiaries. So you're not just abusing them by saying, let's stretch, right? But I stretched people like ridiculously and they soared and they did phenomenally and it made their work meaningful. And by being associated on a team of all these high performing people, everyone felt great about that. So going to work was no longer like this drudge. People couldn't wait to be part of this team. And I saw this over and over and over with my career. It's just the way you assemble it and the way you encourage people to do this. So. I would say you, everyone listening in can certainly get there. Empathy for me personally came from a very abusive childhood. I won't go yeah. into the details of it, yeah. but it, you know, it influenced me to be empathetic. But all you need to do is to ask yourself this one question. How would I feel right now in the moment that I, that, that employee is in? Yeah. And if you just go from there, you'll figure out what the answer is and how to treat them. Yeah, thanks, Mark. And you and you are very open in your book about uh, about the upbringing that you had. And it, as I was reading the book, I, I just couldn't help but think to myself, like, how did you overcome that to not be the example that your father set for you? And instead, you've become this person that just cares so deeply about people. Like, how were you able to overcome that and, and set a new a new course for your life? Oh boy, it's it's a it's a it's hard for me to answer because I don't really know, and and I have been reluctant to share this in previous conversations. Um, but I have a twin brother who was absolutely destroyed by the exact same experience. I have not seen him in twenty years. Not really sure where he is or how he is. All I can tell you is is that. Um, as I look at how we all went through the exact same experiences with all of this abuse. And it really undermined him and cut his legs off and limited his ability to be successful and happy and thriving in the world. And here I am doing this work. I will say that I think my fantasy was to give people what I always wanted and believed it would have made me infinitely more successful if I had been given those things. And by giving it to the people who work for me without any question, no, and you work for me, this is the deal you're gonna get. This is the support that I'm gonna give you. And I saw people just like become something that they weren't before. And it was like, you know, planting seeds and watching flowers come up that were gigantic. And it was healing for me. But all in all, I, I think I'm here for a reason. This is my purpose is to express this message, to be patient with the world and its response to it and ultimately shift are thinking collectively across the world so that the way people go to work in the future and the care and support that they get in their workplace is profoundly different than the environment that most people work in today. Mark, that's, uh, that's beautifully said. And I appreciate you just sharing that with our audience. Just this notion that uh, seeing joy and success in others has been healing for you. That is... Um, that's that's beautiful sentiment. I, uh, I I also wonder is there such a thing? Can like can we go too far the other way? So here we are trying yeah. to say okay let's let's balance the heart and the mind a bit more, which is a huge part of your message. Like you said, it's not ignore the mind, but it's bring a little bit more heart into it to balance it. But 
what's how do how how often does it go the other way and what are the risks i guess of, of getting too close and how would we know remember the balance that we're talking about heart and mind you know so you have to keep that in mind i just learned something so i've never heard before a term called toxic positivity yeah so apparently i have a my pod, my next podcast the guest his name is ethan cross yeah. and and he, he he mentioned it to me and i was like what in the world is toxic positivity? And it's where people, they basically want to annihilate negative emotions, you know? And that's not real life. That's not the way the real world works. So uh, the truth is I haven't seen it in business. You know, there really aren't that many managers that are overdoing praise and appreciation and love and care. So I'm not really sure that we're there, but I, I will go on record as saying, that's stupid <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah. you know right and i truly also believe jeff that the real world is just hard enough that you yeah. can't really overdo saying yeah. thank you and appreciating people it's kind of hard to do but yeah. it's out there there are people trying apparently yeah for sure well and i think that I, there's a couple thoughts i've got on that topic is that you really do have to earn your way up to it and you have to match you can't just be overbearing and, and demand someone you know that, that is going to care about you the way you intend to you know care about them uh so there's there, there's that part of it and and it's got to be authentic and genuine i mean the moment somebody thinks that you're trying too hard and it's not genuine that that's a problem uh and i and i love the toxic positivity i see susan david talk a lot about that as well with emotional agility um here mark here's a hypothesis for you that i just heard about this morning and it came from brene brown she is working on this hypothesis that when in her work she finds that the more masculine the job is the more vulnerable the people are whether they're men or women that fill those roles and the hypothesis is that perhaps if we don't think we need this armor to demonstrate that we have strength and courage and masculinity, we can leave the armor at the job versus a lot of the people that she works with in Silicon Valley and in tech jobs, they're some of the worst on the planet for demonstrating uh, like emotional intelligence and empathy. So it's just, uh, you know, something for, for you to think about because it certainly was something that resonated with. Uh, I, I, I think where I would go with this in terms of, because I've done a lot of work and have spoken at some of the high tech organizations yeah. and, you know, that's a very cerebral occupation, right? Yeah. And so if you're in your head and a lot of these, I mean, a lot of them are geniuses, right? I mean, you know, so anybody who's coding for Google has, I mean, the, the, if you look at the number of people that apply to go to work for Google, they get, the, they get the very smartest people in the world. And the key is, is that they're looking for the smartest people. They're not looking for people who necessarily have the whole package, which is the heart and the mind, the intellect and the emotional intelligence. Yeah. And I think what they've discovered is, is that if all you have is that one dimension, it's going to be really hard for you to be human. Humane, by the way, I, I'm, not, I'm not a fan of the word human. Humans do a lot of bad in this world. It's the humane element that we're looking for. And if we're not cultivating it in people, we're not looking for it. So I would argue that rather than try to take somebody who's like a professional coder, and say, we're going to let you manage other human beings. Bring somebody in who has the demonstrated skill set of managing human beings really effectively and let them cultivate the team. Do, do you see the difference? It's like yeah. we're taking a skill set that 
that we just say, well, if he's a good coder, he's going to make or she's going to be a good manager. And it almost never works that way. It doesn't work that way in sales and architecture, you name it. So yeah. you need to find people who are really good at managing other human beings and teach them enough about the business that they won't get themselves into trouble, as opposed to taking somebody who's really, really good at a skill and saying they're going to be good at managing people. Yeah. What about managers, Mark? Like you're making me wonder about managers that might be really good and, and they are able to get a team rallied around a goal and they meet their objectives, but they could be better. They could be more transformational. They could be more inspiring and encouraging, but they simply just don't want to because the investment it takes in personal growth and courage perhaps to be that kind of a leader is just, it's just a bridge too far. Is there, is there a minimum viable standard that you think organizations can get away with? Or should we be trying to gradually over time replace anybody that's not willing to sort of go as far as they can with transformational leadership and leading, leading with the heart? Well, I mean, obviously, as you're promoting people into more senior levels, those people, because they set the whole tone for the organization, they literally define the culture. I would argue that the organizations need to be very, very careful and thoughtful um, about who they put into those roles because they are, we emulate our leaders, right? And so if somebody is living the values that the organization is striving to, to be, um, that means that that cascades throughout the organization and people are aspiring to be more like those people. Yeah. So start there. But then if you go down to the lower levels of the organization, my fundamental belief is that if you are hiring a manager today, so let's say you and I are in a selection committee, we're going to bring in three managers to your organization. I work for you and we have, you know, all these candidates and on paper, they get numbers, they get results. And you're like, wow, this is great. These people know how to really drive numbers. But then you say to them, so tell me, like, give me some examples of people that you've helped grow and develop in your career. Like somebody who started at a junior level and then you helped them get to next level, next level, next level. Tell me about some of those. And you're gonna get, uh, well, you know, I help all, all my people. No, no, tell me about a specific example. And there are people that can't give you one because they've never come out of themselves to do that for another person. And so the takeaway is, if you aren't convinced that the person in front of you cares as much about other people, about their growth, their well-being, their success, their progress in their careers, as they care about themselves, you don't want them. And I believe that's binary. Yeah. Truly believe it's binary. If they're not, if they can't convince you in your heart of hearts, if you can't be convinced that that person in front of you is going to be a nurturing, supportive, coaching, enabling person with yeah. the people on your team, no matter how great their numbers are, don't take them. Yeah. So zero, uh, zero tolerance. There was, um, there was something else, Mark, that really struck a chord with me in your book, and, and it was a bit of a paradigm shifter, and that there is a phenomenon that exists within some managers that they're actually reluctant to help people grow. What causes that reluctance? That goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the abundance mindset. So if I teach you what I, well, part of it is, so let's say, you know, I spend every weekend reading and I've invested and I've got two degrees and I, and I had a second job through college and, you know, I've worked really hard and now I'm managing people. The attitude is, well, 
I did it, so you do it. You know, you go learn it. I had to work hard to learn it. And that's an interesting belief system because my attitude was, I've already done the work. It's already behind me. Everything I just described to you is what I did. So I would come in, if I read a book over the weekend and type up notes and I'd give it to everybody who worked for me and say, hey, tomorrow when we get, our, get together in a meeting, we're gonna spend the first 15 minutes talking about what I just learned. So I wanted to see people learn because the faster that I could get them to, you know, to being full, you know, the faster they were gonna be high-performing people. But a lot of times we just think, well, I had to put in, pay my dues, so you should have to pay yours. So it's like, what's in your heart? Do you, do you want to see people succeed? Because if you do, then you're going to give them everything you can. If you really are threatened by them, even like a minor insecurity about, you know, I, I don't want them getting ahead of me, getting ahead of their skis. I don't want my boss coming in and going, that Jeff Tetz, man, he's something, you know, he's, yeah. he's really something, you know, and like, Oh, but how come you're not mentioning me? You know, so I'm not going to teach you anything, Jeff, so that you never get that. Or yeah. that's my fantasy. Yeah. And but the funny thing is, is that you, Jeff, will work much harder for me if you know that when our my big boss comes in, I go, hey, I got to tell you, Jeff is just doing this fantastic job. I'm so impressed with him. And then when he comes by and says, hey, you know, your boss Mark was just telling me all these wonderful things about you. Congratulations. How do you feel about me as your boss in that moment? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's going to be very different. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, and the other the other part that you talk about in your book related to that is it it takes a lot of work to build a team for the first time. And, and, and I certainly can sense the exhaustion sometimes where you've got the right people on your team. Things are humming. You know, you're ready for some fast growth. And the thought of losing somebody, whether it's you, you've developed them so much that they're ready for a promotion or they, they leave in general, but that's kind of daunting. And I, and I like what you've said, because you reframed that a bit already in this conversation for me, Mark, is if the mindset is on being just that perpetual coach, it's like, give me a new team every month. And my job is just to get the best out of that team, grow them and get them ready for the next thing. And I, and I think if we, we can all do a better job of reframing what our, um, what our role is for sure. I love that. I mean, what you just said, I just love because the truth is, is that people are just on loan to us. We think they're our property for the rest of our lives. You know, yeah. well, I'm thinking about taking another job. We take it like it's a personal affront, you know, yeah. um, but you're right. It's, yeah. it's an attitude of be able to build a team with, you know, if somebody yeah. leaves, be able to recruit and cultivate and train and be thinking like a college coach where the students aren't there any longer than four years. Yeah. You have got a lot of experience, I mean, managing in a very highly competitive space in the financial sector, and you had to manage teams through a lot of adversity and downturn, financial crisis, uh, as an example. What are some of the things that you have done and would encourage others to do to be able to manage people through periods of adversity and significant hardship without losing the morale? Um, remember Maslow's Pyramid? What's at the bottom? Food, water, shelter, and safety. Yeah. So the minute we go into some kind of calamity or depression, recession, what have you, company can have a problem, or, you know, stock price falls, earnings fall, CEO leaves, whatever. You know, something happens that disrupts everything. The minute that happens, whatever it is, people go in here and they go, how do I feel about this? 
And so what we think about a lot of times is we go, okay, well, everybody needs to work really hard because the company needs us to do this and we need to do this for our boss and, you know, stockholders, they want this to happen. And so we're appealing here and we're not appealing here. So the way to go about it is to figure out what's going to make my team feel safe. What's going to make my, feel, my team feel like I can go do all of that because I'm going to be okay in this. Now you can't solve all that, right? You don't know the future, but what you can say is, hey, everybody, let's all come together here. Yeah. We're, we're heading into a difficult time. So I want you to know I'm here for you. By the way, COVID is a perfect example of this, right? Nothing's been more disruptive in our lives than that. And people are missing their friends and they're missing their, their they don't know what's gonna happen. They don't know when they're going back to work. They can't go outside. They're wearing masks all the time. All, all that is hugely disruptive. It's creating loneliness problems and mental health problems. And so a manager who is intentionally saying, Jeff, you know, I'm concerned about you. Not, not because I think anything's gonna happen to you, but I'm just concerned about you. And so every week, let's just get together for 20 minutes. Every Monday, let's just have a quick call. I just wanna see how you're doing. We're not gonna talk about work. We're not gonna talk yeah. about goals. I just wanna yeah. see how you're doing and if I can support you. Yeah. The minute you do that and make people feel safe and make people feel that you care about them, that's the key. Like he is concerned about me or she is concerned about me. Yeah. that's when people go, okay, I can deliver. Tell me what you need me to do and I'm going to do it. If you don't create that safety, if you don't think that way, then people are just marinating in fear and concern about what the future is going to bring. And fear is the most disruptive emotion there is. So if you aren't thinking like this, you're going to allow people to just spend so much time and people are at home by themselves. So they're in their heads. And if you haven't addressed the fears that people have, they're just going to go, I might lose my job. And if I lose my job, I'm going to lose my house. And I don't want to lose my house. And, you know, we go into all these fantasies. So all it takes is just a quick conversation. How are you doing? You're doing great, by the way. I just, I want you to know I miss you. I'm sorry we can't get together, but everything you've done so far has just been great. And I'm here for you. If you need anything, let me know. How long did that take? You know, yeah. an instant. But it's what it conveys to people that matters. Yeah, and we very much have to be intentional about it. And especially now where we don't have the accidental sort of collisions in the hallways in a remote work environment. Mark, it also occurs to me that oftentimes when we're, when we're looking at leadership, we're studying and trying to get better, oftentimes it's personal growth and it's managing down. Do you have any advice for people that might be wanting to manage up in their organizations to try to inspire people above them in the org chart to start behaving uh, in accordance to some of your uh, teachings and research? Yeah, that's a great question. So first thing I would say is, if you're not being managed the way we're talking about, that shouldn't limit you from managing people the way you believe people need to be managed. And this is an environment now that's much riper. You know, we're, we're at a time now where the kind of leader that we're talking about is are standing out because people are just so grateful to work for somebody like this. So rather than say, hey, manager above me, you know, you should be managing your people the way I'm managing my people. What I did was, and this is the longer way of approaching it, is to just do such a great job with your people and your team that word ultimately gets up. You know, when they have those conversations with those people, how are things with you? 
you know, Jeff has just been so great. He's just been so thoughtful, you know, and our team is, you know, we're, we're just killing it right now and everybody's feeling really good. You hear that enough times, like the senior boss goes like, wow, what's he doing? And at some point you come back and go, hey, Jeff, you know, like what's going on? Well, I realized that this is how I thought we needed to do and look what it's doing. I mean, look at our results, look what's happening. That's how we influence as opposed to getting people to, you know, having to call your boss and go, hey, this is what I'm doing with your team. Just do it. And the results end up speaking for themselves. That's my experience. Yeah, no, that's that's good advice. And I, and I like that it's based on your experience. I, I also sometimes, Mark, I quite frankly get concerned about the state of leadership. And I wonder if we're winning or we're losing. Are we, are we closing the gap or, or, or not? And, and if we're inching towards a critical mass where we're going to be filled with the kinds of leaders that really do view their role as coaches versus that control and command, then that's great. I'm just not sure we are. We are. You know, we hear these stories every single day of high profile leaders. I mean, just yesterday, last night at uh, you know, 1030 at night, uh, the highest ranking military official in Canada was uh, took a voluntary leave because they're under investigation. Like there are all kinds of examples of abuse of power. And I don't know if that's just the high profile media coverage making me think it's more prevalent than it is. What's your stance on whether we're making progress or not? Um, well, I think it, it comes down to two things. If your organization really doesn't care about people, they're not going to care about managers like we're like we are, right? So, the, so you're going to create an environment where it just doesn't matter, and so people are going to feel that in their organization. So, in the companies that have said, you know, we need to make a shift, I think we're definitely making progress. In the organizations where it's every man for himself, and there are plenty of them out there then you know then it's ruthless competition and you're never going to cultivate that and i just truly don't believe that people are going to be able to they're going to i don't think high talent people that are you know want to really be phenomenal at their work are going to want to work in an organization like that so i think it's yeah. a short-term strategy the other thing that i'll say is and this is, has to do with personal leadership there's a professor of psychology at uc berkeley where my son went to school and his name is Dr. Keltner. And he has done research, which unfortunately proves that if you give anybody power, you, me, everybody listening in, and people are gonna be shaking their heads when, when they're gonna hear what I'm gonna say, we will abuse it. We will abuse it, you know? And he's done repeated studies that have shown, just give people, give people power arbitrarily, like you're in charge. And they watch them on a monitor and they start abusing people. And it's, and it's not necessarily abusing people, but they take power too far. And I, I've asked this question of all of my podcast guests. What's the biggest derailer, career derailer for leaders? And universally, the same answer, it's arrogance or ego. They're both the same, right? And so what I would say to you is keep, keep your power in check. Be conscious because it can actually get ahead of you. So that's the head operating more than the heart. The heart will say, hey, you know, ease up a little bit here, but just be vigilant throughout the course of your career that you don't veer into, this is so powerful and exciting to me. I mean, we're seeing this in the United States. I won't get into the politics, but there's plenty of evidence of people that are playing in power that don't want to lose it and they will do anything to keep it. And I mean anything lie, cheat, you know, yeah. and that's sort of the worst case scenario, but we can all abuse power and we need to be, you know, a little bit thoughtful about that. 
Yeah, yeah, and there's and there's been a lot of research on just the psychology of power, and and uh, it's uh, it, it sort of demonstrates that everybody experiences uh, a, a power relationship as they gain authority and influence, and surrounding ourselves with the right kind of networks to hold us accountable and keep us in check can be important. So I, I'm going to ask the uh, I'm going to ask the listeners to stay with us on this piece because I have to admit when I read it in the book I thought so that's a little far out there, but you have some really unique research that you cite in your book and and one of the things that you cited was uh, in organizations with great leaders the leaders and the employees actually suffer uh, you know less heart disease as an example so that's interesting but the one that really got me thinking was you even share an example where on farms where they name their cows and they treat the cows with more affection and respect, the milk production improves. Like that's kind of, that's a little out there. Uh, could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, really what it comes down to is if I asked you and the audience to point to yourself, where would you point? You would, you would probably point right here. And yeah. that center of your chest is your heart. You know, yeah. we're, we're, we're not going here. And so there's something inside of us that knows that the heart has got a little something more than just being a pump, right? Yeah. Um, it might surprise you that in, in an embryo that of all the organs that is formed first, it's the heart, it's not the mind. And that almost implies that nature is saying, okay, heart, we're going to make you and then you take over. You orchestrate the rest of the growth of this child, right? I mean, so, so there's these kinds of things, but really what we're finding is, and you know, the people that are studying the brain are discovering this and the people that are studying the heart, like the American Heart Association, for example, has proved that if you work on your heart, if you like exercise, that it immediately affects your brain, right? And like your 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 cognitive abilities improve. Well, why would how could that happen? If they're separate, if they're independent, that that wouldn't happen. Same thing is the opposite, which is that things that you do for your mind create heart health. So if you're under stress all the time, and you're feeling it, and you're thinking about how stressful you are, you're harming your heart. So the science is really showing that the heart is has its own form of intelligence. And some of this is a little bit mystical, right? I won't get into that. You know, there's, there's some element that says that, you know, that, that that heart of ours is connected to higher consciousness, higher our higher selves. But if you just look at the real science around it, that you, that's provable, we know that the heart and the mind are in constant communication with one another. And what happens inside of us, how we feel, determines very often how we think. So if I'm working for you, Jeff, and you're thoughtful with me and you're caring with me and you're appreciative and you're giving me growth opportunities, I'm creating all these positive emotions inside of me that translates into, I want to reciprocate. I'm going to do great work for this guy because of how he or she is making me feel. And that's really what we're talking about here is that, and Barbara Fredrickson, who's a star positive psychologist, University of North Carolina, um, she actually told me not that long ago that she's figured out that all, all emotions are short lived. So if we're feeling joyful or really angry, they don't last forever, they go away. But she also said that we thrive on positive emotions. So this is the cow's experience. They're, this must affect them too. It's a sentient being. 
And so what she said was, we human beings are hardwired to thrive on positive emotions. And because they don't last long, if you're constantly thanking people and growing people and staying connected with them and doing all the things that we're talking about, you're giving them this constant experience and you're allowing them to marinate in positive emotions. And what happens when people marinate in their positive emotions? You set them up, you actually literally put them into their optimal state of performance. Yeah. There's an organization called the Institute of Heart Math. They call it coherence. When the heart and the mind are in this like perfect rhythm where the feelings are so great inside that the mind is having this great experience that it creates optimal performance for people. It sets people yeah. up to perform at their best level. Yeah. And this is all about the heart. Yeah, no, that's good. You're, you're, you remind me of an exercise that Tony Robbins does. And there's, there's been some evidence that when you, uh, when you actually put your hand on your heart and you imagine things that you're grateful for, your brain waves and your heartbeat sync with each other. And usually they're in, in uh, they're they're asynchronous they're they're asynchronistic, <laughs> uh, so to each other, which which is quite interesting. And uh, it it's it is out there, but my my sort of recommendation is believe it and care about people, nurture them, connect with them, and they're gonna they're gonna do better. Let, let I, me give let me give you one more example of this, and I'll try to be really quick. Um, there's a gentleman, and I, I'm, I'm just going to give you the title of the book. It's yeah. called Compassionomics. It's a doctor in New Jersey who basically was asked by his CEO to go and research whether being more thoughtful and, and like connecting more with patients could have any meaningful impact on the hospital, right? Any meaningful impact. And what they discovered through looking at a thousand different abstracts and another 750 research articles on compassion, which by the way, in my language is caring, yeah. is that it's sort of this wonder drug. Not only did people heal faster with compassionate doctors, so they, they set them up with a non-compassionate doctor and a compassionate doctor. People that had the compassionate doctor not only healed faster, but they healed from diseases that they thought were fatal, like cancer and AIDS, like miraculously. Yeah. Meanwhile, 30%, 35% of these doctors, 450 do doctors, a third of them were burnt out, openly burnt out. And they, by being more compassionate with people, they, they turned it around because it became more meaningful. They were having more meaningful experiences. The hospital's profitability went up. All of these things benefited. And this guy, who's a chief scientist, medical doctor, head guy, he said, you know, I thought this was all science that healed people, but it affects people. So you go yeah. back to the cows. If it affects cows, it's got to affect human beings. That's... Yeah, I I, uh, I I believe it, and I and because I feel it in my heart, I I believe it, and I think sometimes I think everything I needed to learn in life, I I learned by watching the Rocky movies, Mark, and I always think about Rocky's trainer Mickey, and he would always say to Rocky, you know, Rock, you're all heart, you're all heart. No, <laughs> nowhere did he say you're all head, you're right. all head, right? Like it's it's always about the heart. So uh, so we know that. Mark, Mark, one of the last uh, one of the last questions that I have for you, uh, and I was reminded of this. Uh, I, I heard a story in over the last few days that the American Air Force has a leadership philosophy that you cannot lead somebody that you don't feel affection for, and they'll go to the lengths of actually redeploying somebody to a different team, if and unit if they just can't find that connection on an affectionate level, which I found really interesting. 
And it, and it made me think about the very last chapter in your book. And for those of you that haven't read the book yet, uh, I have uh, very few instances, instances in my life where I've read a book and I was emotionally moved to the level that I was when I finished Mark's book. And it actually brought me to tears. And it was a story that he shared about managing a challenging employee, because we've all had to do that, Mark. And I wondered if, if uh, one of the ways that we could end the episode today would be for you to sort of share that story of what that what happened in that in that situation for you. Okay, so I'll just add that, you know, when you're in military, and you're going into battle, you want to know every one of the people on your team is your brother, right? So that starts with love. So the military has embraced this, which is amazing. To have a leader be affectionate is stunning, stunning to me, right? That they would even think that way. So that's really cool. Um, so here's the situation. I took over a team and it's, it's hard to explain, but there, were, there was a merger of organizations and I was the only person chosen from all these other organizations. So I took on a team that was coming from like five or three organizations and five or six different managers. There was no continuity in our team. I only knew three or four of them. But what I did know was that some of them had worked in an organization that I had worked for before and at where I personally had a really good reputation. But as I brought my team together, what I had discovered was that they, many of them had worked for somebody who was a brutal micromanager. And not when I say brutal, not just somebody that had three you know, calls a week with people asking them, give me a commitment, where are you? And why didn't you hit your goal and do that publicly and shame people and do this week in and week out and make people feel really awful when they didn't achieve, but also someone who just really didn't care about people. So what happened was for reasons that I still don't understand, one of the managers that I inherited had a fantasy that because the manager that I just described to you and I had both worked at this other organization at one time that I was gonna manage her and everybody else exactly the same way. Like I was gonna be this brutal micromanager which couldn't have been any more you know, far removed from the truth. So I was unaware of this. And what I found was I had these meetings, I brought my team together and I had more dissension than I've ever had before. Like I could feel like people were out to get me and I didn't really understand it. And I, so my first decision was just trust in yourself and just keep being who you are until people are gonna win, you're gonna win them over. So um, my company was based in Seattle, I happened to be in Seattle one day, and it started with my boss who hadn't like made any effort to come down and spend any time with me or, you know, really done anything to sort of say, hey, you're doing a good job. And so I just said to him, I go, hey, like, you know, I've been working for you for like nine months and never have like said I'm doing a good job or anything. I, I, I was feeling bad at the moment. And he goes, well, he goes, I also didn't tell you that one of your managers wrote the president of the bank and said that you're the worst regional manager in the company and that they needed to fire you. And I said, what? And I said, who would do that? And so he had the letter and showed it to me. And I was just like, I can't believe this. So obviously I had two choices. One was to go and retaliate and fire this woman and get her out of my organization because she basically tried to destroy my career or to say, she, what, where's she coming from? This is the empathy. 
She's coming from a ridiculous form of fear that has nothing to do with me. None of this has anything to do with me. And if I just do what I do, I will win her over. So when she, her name was Shirley, I forget what I called her in the book, but her name was Shirley. And so when we would have team meetings together, I knew Shirley had written this letter and I wanted to win her over. I didn't want to punish her. And so I would just, you know, say, hey, Shirley, great job on this. And I was in Shirley's branch and Shirley did this. And it was so wonderful. And you could just see like that. That's not the micromanaging jerk boss that I thought. So over a period of months, this started to unwind. And I could see that like we were having a nice time together and I could feel that things were getting better. So she called me one day and she said, we've just finally gotten the relationship where it was like in neutral. It wasn't like she was my biggest fan or anything, but it wasn't like she was, it was contentious. And she said, I have cancer and I need to leave. I need to go out for a while and I don't know if I'm coming back. So I just, you know, I had an assistant at the time. I said, everything that we send out to the, to the managers were sent to Shirley, send it to her house. So like if we had prizes and stuff, we would send the prizes to her home. We'd send the reports and it kept her completely engaged in our team and made her feel like she was still a part of it, even though she was home recovering and she came back and she came back and it was like, I mean, we both cried. It was just absolutely just wonderful to have her back. And a month later, she called me and said, I have to go out again. The cancer has gotten worse. And she ended up dying. And so I wouldn't say from my point of view that we ever really got beyond the neutral. But the day after she died, her daughter um, called me and said, would you be willing to speak at my mother's funeral? And I said, speak at your mother's funeral? And I said, she said, she wrote me a letter, I have it in front of me that says, and she told me in person, but she literally documented this. I only want one person to speak at my funeral and it's Mark Crowley. So I went and spoke at her funeral and I didn't know, she didn't tell me that I was the only one. And we're walking into the church and the minister at this church, you know, he's got all this regalia on and he's walking out. He goes, you follow me and then I'll tell you when to go on. And I go, okay, thank you. And he said, yeah. and you better be good. And I said, why? Like I've never had a religious person say you better be good. And he said, because Shirley wanted you to be the only one to speak. Yeah. Mark, that's, um, that is uh, so powerful and so beautiful and, um, and unfortunate and tragic all, all at the same time. And when I finished reading it, I, I was just gutted. And uh, one of the things that really struck me was how often do managers just find any loophole that they can to get rid of a challenged employee? And you ended up having, even though you didn't know about it till she had passed away, you probably made the biggest impact on her, maybe other than her children uh, on, or her parents than anybody else had made in her entire life. And you were sitting there thinking that she still wanted you to be fired. So that's, um, that's remarkable. Thank you for sharing that, Mark. I think, I think, you know, also to your point that what I learned afterwards that I affected my team because they saw how I treated Shirley and how Shirley ended up treating me. Yeah. And so we always think about it, it's only a personal relationship. It's me and Shirley, but everybody's paying attention. So everybody yeah. saw what happened and they were thrilled by the outcome as well. Yeah. That's great. Mark, thank you. And that brings us to the last segment of the show. And it's what we call three and 30. 
And it's three things that any manager can do in the next 30 days to get better at leading from the heart. Mark, what are the three things, the three and 30? Okay. So the first one I mentioned before, and it really, it, it really ties into COVID, but it's actually something to continue afterwards, which is to immediately schedule weekly calls with every direct report. So I believe that your span of control, the ability, how many people can work for you is the number of people that you can do this with a week. Like if you can make 10 calls a week, that's the number of people that you can have. So basically what I'm saying is you're just calling to check on their well-being. It's not, hey, while I have you on the phone, where are you on this project? It's just seriously, just so that we can connect to see how people are and make sure that people know that you're thinking about them and concerned about them and there to support them. It's informal, so there's no agenda. And if they go, hey, why have you on the phone? We talk once a week on our results. We'll do that then. This is just about us, okay? That's one. Number one, number two is communicate your expectations on when you expect, expect their hours, their work hours to start and end. I believe that the mental illness problem that is happening right now is because, and there's all sorts of data that's showing when people are locked down in their homes, they're working longer. And we managers are like, hey, I like that. They're getting more work done, but it's unsustainable because it's taking away from what they would normally be doing. And people could say, well, you know, they're commuting and all that kind of stuff and that's taken away. So they have that time. We shouldn't be expecting it. We shouldn't be expecting people to jump on calls after hours or to respond to emails. The most thoughtful thing that you can do is to say, you know, within reason, I don't expect you to be responding to an email after X o'clock or before Y o'clock. And if there's an emergency, I'll text you or I'll call you. But otherwise, I want you to know these are my expectations. Gartner has just shown that there's been this massive increase in the number of people updating their profiles on LinkedIn. And so what does that tell you? It tells you that people are looking for jobs, even though there aren't jobs available, they're trying to get ahead of it because they're unhappy with the way they're being treated. Yeah. Um, and then the third one is something that is just, is number one on my, my agenda for any of these kinds of conversations, which is what I call institutionalizing recognition. Managers think that they recognize their people all the time or they rationalize and go, well, Jeff knows that I think he's doing a great job, so I don't need to tell him all the time. And I'm saying you cannot ask people to do more for you until you thank them for what they've already done. So that means you have to start off Oh, you're like, if you have a monthly meeting and saying, let's talk about what we just performed and then acknowledge people for what they did. And if you have 30 people and 27 of them nailed it, met your expectations or exceeded them, you can't just go, well, we only have time to thank the top three. You have to top all, thank all 27. Yeah. And by doing that, now you've elevated everyone who is doing really great. And the people that aren't, for example, are going to want that recognition. But you have to institutionalize it because people have to know that first of the month when we have our team meeting, Jeff is going to say, Mark, you are doing a great job because I worked my rear end off for it. And if you fail to do that, then people go, well, nothing gets appreciated around here. So why should I be working the weekends or why should I be putting in all this extra time? So those are my three. I have a fourth. And I would say, ask yourself and have your people ask themselves. Is this meeting really important? Like, is this meeting going to move any needle whatsoever? And if it's not, give people permission and yourself permission to not schedule it or not have, a, have them attend it. 
make sure that meetings aren't, you know, we're, we're meeting people to death in this environment and it's killing people. Let people go back and do their jobs and not have eight calls a day. Yeah, those are great, Mark. Very tactical, uh, very attainable in 30 days and something I think that we can all add to our leadership repertoire. I want to thank you for joining us today, Mark. Uh, you've been very gracious. And this is a episode I will never forget for a variety of reasons. Thank you to our generous audience as well. The community of Unleashed subscribers and leaders is just wonderful. And again, to Andrea and Janelle, thinking on the fly, uh, you really were uh, real world MacGyvers today. And as we close, I want to give you an opportunity to stay connected with us. So you can find Mark at markcrowley.com. If you have questions for us, comments, suggestions for the episodes uh, today and into the future, you can reach us at info at unleashresults.com. We'll be promptly getting back to your emails and you can follow us on Twitter at Unleash Results. And then the recordings and a whole bunch of people are gonna wanna watch the recording of this one uh, again for a variety of reasons. You can find the recordings at unleashresults.com and just follow the drag down menus to find the Unleashed page that houses the episodes and the blog post that Tim Connor uh, diligently does every week. And book, we're giving away a couple copies of Mark C. Crowley's book, Lead from the Heart. Wonderful read, highly recommend it for you and for all your managers. I mean, I would encourage you to get it for anybody that's a manager or an upcoming soon-to-be manager. It's that powerful and that practical. And you can be entered into that draw by just filling out the bonus offer form at the end of the episode today. And if you're ready to take a next step, if your business is good, but you want to make it great, we have a couple of ways you can do that. Just check the box and we will send you a copy of the six things that companies should be looking at to accelerate out of the pandemic curve. So get ahead of the competition instead of getting left behind it. And you can also check the box if you'd like to have a conversation, a private and confidential conversation with Nicole, and she can walk you through some of the ways that you might start to improve your own leadership and your team's capabilities. And then next week, so imagine this, that you were anticipating taking over the highest performing submarine in the US Navy, and in a last minute change of events, found out you were taking over the worst performing naval vessel. Well, that's what happened to David Marquet. And he not only took it over, but in six months, turned it into the highest performing naval ship in the entire American fleet. And he's going to tell us how he did it and how you can do that in your companies. And as an extra special treat, our very own Jeffrey White's going to join us for a conversation on the back half of next week's episode. He's part of the Royal Canadian Navy, and he is a captain, and he's going to talk about his own practical experience on how the Canadian Navy approached strategy and leadership and how you can apply that to your own teams and your own organizations. And in the meantime, everybody just reminding you, never underestimate the impact that you can make in another person's life through your leadership and your own personal growth. Until next time, everybody, be well.